Ten hut. The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace Podcast are appearing as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. What are you looking at? Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always remember your training, consider your situation, and fly the aircraft. Now drop and give me 20. Down. What? Down. David, what sort of mischief have you been up to out there at uh, at uh, KICT? Uh, there's a story in the news about a airliner that stopped at uh, at uh, at Wichita to get gas. Oh yeah, and then took yeah. off. And it's a oh, it wasn't an airline. Well, it wasn't strictly speaking an airliner. It was a, a charter, I guess. Allegiant Air. Uh, said no, that, that's so scheduled. Is it scheduled? Well, I'm even thinking of something yeah. else. Anyways, an airline passenger yeah. suffered a slight injury while coming down an escape slide. When a ch- no, it says when a charter plane made an emergency landing in Kansas after losing an engine. Allegiant Air spokesperson says the MD-80 was carrying 125 people from Pittsburgh to Laughlin, Nevada. Oh, gamblers. Hmm. Okay. Uh, on Wednesday night, stopped at Midcontinent to refuel. They started. They took off from Midcontinent. Now I'm paraphrasing. And uh, passengers, passengers heard a loud boom, which is usually a good sign that they should return to the airport. And so <laughs> they, they turned. That's for, usually an indication for me. Yeah. Um, well, you think about it, though, the opposite is also true. What's that? When all that noise suddenly goes away. Yeah, right. That's a good sign. The, uh, yeah. yeah, the passengers on board the uh, Hudson River airplane uh, reported that it got got you know surprisingly quiet which i guess it would um the few times i've yeah flown, well the bleed the bleed air had to go away so the the air vent system it it shut down that's a big source of noise yeah yeah and uh although i'll tell you the uh, the few times i've ridden in gliders in uh, sailplanes um you know you sort of expect it to be silent flight you know and that kind of thing and it's not at all right it's like uh, there's a lot of wind noise you know maybe a jet airliner doesn't have as much wind noise leaking in through you know cracks in the hatch so to speak but uh um, but it apparently got really quiet on the Hudson River flight. Um, anyways, they heard a loud boom after uh, taking off from Wichita, and they came back and um, landed. And apparently, it, 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 see, I wouldn't have thought that simply a loud boom and a precautionary return would would get us to the point of deploying the slides and having people, you know, take off their shoes and so forth. Um, uh, you know, that's. That's one of those situational uh, – and if somebody gets to the door and, and pushes it open before a flight attendant uh, can disarm the slide. Oh, I see. Uh, okay. You know, it's going to deploy. Uh, but again, I, I mean, and, so what, what else went on in this cabin that made the passengers feel like they needed to do a, an emergency egress? Uh, what's the buzz in Kansas, in, in Wichita? Is there any talk about this? Do, do, have you heard from any of your buddies what actually happened here? No, I actually haven't. And, uh, you know, the, the that, that was a – I think you may be right about it being a charter flight. But Allegiant Air is a, does a scheduled operator and does a lot of gambling work. And it flies out of mid-continent. But this flight didn't originate here, uh, according to this. And it kind of struck me that it stopped for refueling. So – it must have been really, really well loaded. 
uh, from to, to have to stop here from Pittsburgh to get to uh, basically Las right. Vegas. I would imagine that there was the usual, you know, uh, briefing from the from the cabin crew. Ladies and gentlemen, we're returning to the airport. Uh, we have we've declared an emergency. Uh, please be prepared to follow in the instructions and get off the airplane as quickly as possible. Uh, it's also possible that there was a, an announcement, although I don't know this, from the flight deck saying something like, we're stopped, you know, get out of the airplane. Uh, the rear evac on this airplane has a stairway. You pop the tail cone, there's a stairway that... that also got a stairwell it, down the tail. You know, but this isn't the infamous uh, what's-his-name who jumped out with a parachute and was never seen again airplane. Uh, no, that was a 727. <clears throat> yeah, D.B. Cooper. Yeah, that was 727. Right. So uh, This was an MD, MD-80, which is basically a third-generation DC-9. Yeah, okay. Well, this is a story the, the, where... There's a problem with this, though. That, 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 yeah, Jeb, what's the problem? Yeah, there's a problem here, though, and, and this is the way this story is written. The headline and then and then in the lead paragraph says, you know, loses an engine. Okay. Um, now, to you and I and anyone familiar with, with aviation, we think of losing an engine as, okay, the engine's failed for some reason. The the average passenger, the, uh, the unindoctrinated uh might see that phrase and say, oh, my God, the engine fell off the airplane. I know. Okay. It stalled and, and then fell off, right? Yeah. Well, no, whatever. It blew up. It fell off. No, the, I know. The, yeah. the yeah. pylon broke, uh -huh. whatever. And uh, you read. You have to read down into the story um, where it, it basically says, you know, officials believe the left engine failed. Well, whoop-de-doo. Uh, and and someone that was someone quoted here in the story says there was no indication of a fire. Again, whoop de doo. Um, it generated five paragraphs, which is about all it deserves. Uh, engine failures happen uh, with some regularity, and and um, um, unless uh, um, it, 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 it something else happens that uh, triggers an NTSB incident or uh, accident uh, file, uh, it's it's a non-event. Engines fail all the time. Thankfully, they fail a lot less frequently than they used to. Well, that's my question um, for you being the master of the NTSB database. Um, do, does this kind of thing rise to the level of an entry in the database? Was there a report there? I, I would have to research this uh, in the context of a 121 operation. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. In, 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 okay, as opposed to a 91 operation. An engine failure in a 91 operation alone and a safe landing, no damage, no nothing – uh, you taxi up on one engine to the, uh, if you're in a twin, taxi up on one engine to the maintenance shop, fix the, the broken engine, fly away. That's all you have to do is, is log the maintenance that was done to the airport. Well, no, no, no. They uh, deployed if, the slides. Well, that's 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 a whole different thing. I mean, right so, there, you got paperwork to fill out, you know. Uh, well, right there, you got paperwork to fill out. And right there, you know, an engine failure in a 121 operation, kind of, and it depends on the op specs on one level. It depends on on uh, um, what the NTSB Part 830 regs have to say, and I just haven't read them recently with it, with the idea of reading them in the context of 121. Yeah. Plus, plus it may, or, it may or may not be an event. It may or may not be. I'm sorry. It may or may not be a, uh, an incident. It may or may not be an accident. If anyone was injured, 
Well, according um, to the story, someone was injured on the slide. That's a slight injury, so that that would qualify certainly as an incident. The, the severity of the injury would would dictate whether or not it was a, it was an accident. Yeah. It's all uh, very it's complicated. A charter, it's a charter MD80. That means it's it's uh, it's a 121 operation. So, um, but but losing an engine in and of itself, I mean. You know, that implies, you know, hey, it departed the airplane. It's sitting in a cornfield somewhere. Um, and that's not what apparently happened. No, it doesn't sound like it. Doesn't and sound I like hate it. when that happens, too. They're well, so hard to find. We need to get up yeah. to speed on all this stuff because uh, well, because we're going to buy the Donald's airplane, apparently. Okay, see? so. Uh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, um, um, so according uh, to uh, uh, Avpro, uh, avprojets.com, which is an aircraft sales, uh, I guess an airplane broker, um, uh, the, uh, a Trump jet, a Boeing 727-100, uh, is uh, for sale, and ooh, it could be old, ours. Old now, my question is, how many of these airplanes are there? Because I actually saw uh, one of these Trump-liveried aircraft uh, on the ramp at Manchester uh, a couple weeks ago. And uh, I'm trying to figure well, out. Well, was it a 72? I guess we just kind of taxied by it. I didn't really, you know, get that good a look at it. And I'm, okay. I'm not real good at some of these airplane identities, identifications, but uh, okay. it looked, it could remember, have been this model. Remember, too, that Trump Trump used to have an airline. Right. And so, but you think all those airplanes are still flying around with the paint no. on them? I wouldn't no, think so. No, but it's, it's entirely possible. Uh, um, the, the flip side of which is I would think that uh, he really only had one uh, bizjet or at least one uh, airline style bizjet but you know who knows um, i have a hard time god uh, bless my little state of new hampshire here but i have a tar- hard time picturing the donald visiting manchester new hampshire maybe um he might have some spankette stashed up there who knows <laughs> well there you go that explains everything um <laughs> So one last little item here before we kind of really get rolling here, and this is I don't know. See, I go both ways on this. This is so. This is a story from the Northwestern dot com, which is uh, uh, one of our favorite newspapers for two weeks out of each year. Um, it's uh-huh. the uh, uh-huh. one of the local papers, lo- local dailies up in the Oshkosh area, and uh, they have a reputation for I don't know. I have it's a love hate thing. They cover Oshkosh and aviation in a big way that week, um, but they certainly do like to uh, to uh, to make a big deal out of any incident that's that's going on up there. So, anyways, they so a story from Northwestern.com. Not clear whether this story was in the newspaper or not, but it's on their website. Um, now, some people would have you believe that this story is that, that this is foolish and a bad thing. All right, um, report of possible plane crash proves to be a pile of burning leaves. Uh, almost an hour after beginning a search Wednesday afternoon for a possible plane crash, law enforcement officials and firefighters concluded that no plane went down in southeastern Fond du Lac County. Um, a farmer in a field called authorities at about 3.40 p.m. to report that he saw a low-flying airplane and then a puff of thick smoke. Right? Well, it turns out that right. the airplane was right. just an airplane and the smoke was somebody burning leaves which he had ignited by pouring some gasoline on it, which made a big puff of smoke. So it's kind of like, you, you know, know. that's a pretty reliable way to make your leaves burn. Too. Yeah. <laughs> a little overkill, if you ask me. Um, and then, so this, 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 uh, this caused yet, yet another of, you know, kind of circles and arrows and paragraphs. They used all the implements of destruction here <laughs> in, order to, uh, in order to find uh, this non-existent airplane crash. Um, they had the helicopters out, and they had the airplanes out, and they had the uh, fire department and the police cruisers. Wait apparently. a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait a minute. 
this aircraft what? wasn't kind of spherical and shiny and <laughs> yeah, flat. No. Was it? So so listen. So so some people I guess want you to think. I don't know who was it. Jeb, did you put this on the list? Yeah. Yeah. Now what was what was your 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 what were you going for here? You, did you think this was a stupid thing? I see. God bless these folks who are reporting a possible crash and for people God looking into them. it. Yeah. Um, God bless okay, them, everyone. So, uh, yeah, God bless them, everyone. A farmer in a field called authorities about 3.40 p.m. to report that he saw a low-flying plane and then a puff of thick smoke. Okay, that's, that's reasonable enough. Um, res- rescue workers rushed to the area, including the Flight for Life helicopter and the Town of Eden Fire Department, but found no sign of a plane in the Mitchell Road area east of Highway 45. About 4.20 p.m., so like an hour, uh, I'm sorry, four zero minutes later, officials learned that a man in the area had started a pile of leaves on fire with gasoline. Uh, we, we don't know if this was 100 low lead or premium unleaded or just regular unleaded, um, creating a large puff of dark smoke. Two planes reported to be in the area about the time of the possible crash were accounted for. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I just think that... Um, um, Someone here overreacted. I don't know if it was the the farmer in the field, if it was authorities who, who quote rushed to the area, um, including you know vectoring a helicopter, hopefully not launching the helicopter from scratch uh, to get out there. But um, you know clearly it's 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 they exercise due diligence, and, and all that is to be rewarded. Um, I don't know. I just it, it just struck me as as a little bit of an overreaction. Now, you know, flip side of which is, if I'm the Porsche Mach who's just crashed an airplane, yeah, come on down, guys. You know, send the helicopter. Please, come find and, me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but it, a low-flying it, airplane it, in and of itself isn't, isn't cause for long. No, and I don't know. if you look at the convergence of the low-flying airplane to the guy that called us in, the convergence of the low-flying airplane that disappeared from view, and then he... You know, a short time later, or very close to the same time, sees a puff of thick black smoke. That's not necessarily an illogical conclusion. And then I got to consider the the neighborhood in which this happens. Town of Osceola, Wisconsin, near Oshkosh. Uh, it's served by a big central uh, Gannett operation that feeds several newspapers, most of them small town papers. And this is just the kind of stuff that folks like to 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 read, and they didn't give it much space. But, oh, did you see that big thick smoke? Nah, that wasn't an airplane. That was okay. just some dummy in a pile of leaves. And the, uh, the, the city editor, the managing editor at one of these small papers is going to look at that and said, oh, they came out of the bureau? Uh, yeah, put that inside page four. Uh, you know, below the fold, and off it goes. Uh, probably didn't even send a reporter out. They probably did it by phone. So you're saying this story is the result of uh, the uh, the uh, mainstream media's endless hunger for trivial but exciting blurbs. Well, endless hunger, trivial, exciting, whatever. Uh, endless quest to fill space. There you go. Um, no, I kind of I, I you know. kind of think differently. Um, in, in that the story itself is is in this. I don't know. The story itself is is that you know uh, uh, local uh, 
fire rescue officials responded to possible airplane crash and and didn't find anything. That's why all the commotion. That's why the fire engine launched. That's why the helicopter was was flying around the south, you know, the part of the county, whatever. Um, that's I think really the story here, as opposed to uh, a journalist, you know, flying off the handle. I think actually the story itself is fairly well oh, done. Oh yeah. Uh, from a journalist. Yeah, no, I, I'm not talking um, about it flying off the, the handle. They got a phone call. They heard about yeah. it on the scanner, yeah. whatever. They followed up, uh, you know, 20 minutes of phone calls, and the guy goes, uh, yeah, this ended well, and uh, it'll lead up, let's see, one, two, it'll lead up about two and a half column inches, and in it goes. Mm-hmm. Before we leave, the last, the last uh, line in the story, though, sums it up. Quote, we'd much rather have this happen than the real thing, unquote. There you go. There you go. There you go. Well, speaking of an endless quest to fill space, uh, welcome, folks, to episode 161 <laughs> of Uncontrolled Airspace, the uh, general aviation podcast. Did I really give him that segue? <laughs> we are. Not only a segue, it's the title. It's just got to be. We're recording this episode on Wednesday, uh, November 19th, 2009. And uh, joining me here in the virtual hangar is uh, Dave Higdon. No, uh, no, 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 no. What? No, 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 no. What? It's Thursday, man. It's Thursday. It's, uh, it is Thursday. You're right. Thursday, November 19th, 2009. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Because it's really important that we straighten that out. People are going to be setting their clocks for, uh, based on listening to the podcast. Dave Higdon is out there. Well, joining, oh, there's a lot of late people out there. Joining us from Wichita, Kansas. Hi, David. How are you? Oh, pretty good. Uh, you know, we haven't had a uh, an, an emergency uh, airport return all day, so I'd, I'd count that as a, a good start. You did have an impromptu uh, meetup, though. Uh, what happened? Our old Navy on Jonathan, pilot, Jonathan. Navy on pilot, right, uh, called Monday, I don't know, around midday, and was uh, on a, on a uh, trip for the company for which he flies. And uh, he and the uh, other member of the flight crew were in town for an overnight and called up, see if we wanted to get together for a beer, maybe dinner. Uh, We'd had a particularly, uh, hadn't been a great day. Uh, Not not a day that we really felt like being out and about all that much, but the idea of getting out and Getting some fresh air, having a beer over at the Hangar One Tower Lounge. That was appealing, so we joined uh, uh, Jonathan, Navy on pilot, and uh, and his uh, flying partner Andy, and uh, had a beer and swapped stories. And my wife got to meet one of our uh, one of our more uh, active podcast participants on the on the forums area, yeah. and uh, had a good time. We passed on having dinner with them because we really needed to get some other stuff done before we stopped for the day. Yeah, sounds great. Uh, but it was fun meeting up with them. Glad they called. Glad that we had time to work out and, uh, and, and meet up with them. That's right. And also here in the uh, virtual hangar is Jeb Burnside, who's talking to us from somewhere near Sarasota, Florida. Hi, Jeb. Hey, how are we doing tonight? Oh, we're doing good. We're doing good. Yeah. What's going on? Uh, how you doing? No, What's everything's up? good. Weather, weather, I'm, I'm fine. Weather's great. Um down here um did some flying over the weekend uh parked the airplane stuck the um the oil drain bucket under the engine and, and stuck the hose up under it and dropped the drop started to drop the oil and turned around and went to do something else came back to check on it and there's oil all over the engine compartment oh. uh i kinked the hose 
and it backed up and dumped, uh, you know, half a crankcase of oil. Oh, I'm so annoyed. I bet. Um, so I've, I've got to get out there uh, <clears throat> over the weekend and get that cleaned up because I how, have to fly the airplane. But, not only how big a cleanup just, job is that, how important is that you get it all out of there? Is it just a, is it just a cosmetic trip. thing or is it a safety thing? It's not a safety thing per yes. se. Now, I mean, there's there are there are pools of oil. Describing, you know, I don't know how many of our listeners might understand the the engine compartment of a Bonanza. Um, you, the the top half of the cowling opens up. Okay, fine. Uh, get get access to the to the bottom half of the engine. All right, top half of the engine. Um, there are two what we call cheek panels that are on either side of the lower half of the cowling that you open up uh, that give you access to the uh, underside of the engine. Um, and then you have the keel that um, um, is literally underneath the engine. Uh, it's not, the engine is not mounted to that, but it's it's part of it. It's a structural component. And then there are these stringers um, that run uh, laterally from the keel to the outside of the uh, of the cowling uh, in the bottom of the engine compartment. And they basically serve as baffles, if you will, um, to trap pools of drained oil. <laughs> Yeah. In, in the engine compartment. Wait a minute, so I'm sorry. Is that really their have, purpose? Is that really no. their purpose, or you're being facetious? I'm being facetious. He's being facetious. Um, okay, I probably fine. have two or two or three quarts of, of oil trapped in the cowling of that airplane that I've got to get out and, and clean up. And it's just gonna. It, I was so disgusted. I just locked the hangar door and walked away. Yeah. You know? Yuck. Um, um, but uh, tonight, tomorrow night, uh, probably tomorrow night, actually. And over the weekend, I'll get all that cleaned up, and and by by Sunday on Saturday, the airplane will be you know ready to go again. But I'm just so annoyed with that. I, I've probably changed the oil on an airplane 50 times, and never ever done anything like that. Uh-huh. Uh It's just so annoying. Yeah, I bet. Okay. Yeah. So that, anyway, that's kind of how my so my so, so we uh, uh, we should we should consider you a little bit a little bit kinky. <laughs> and I am. You, you could consider. But let's put it this way. Let's put it this way. Occasionally, my hose gets kinked. <laughs> and I am Jack Hodgson. Moving on, moving on. And I am Jack Hodgson. Moving on. From, <laughs> TMI, the TMI. O- from the home office in Dover, New Hampshire. where uh, that's, that, that, that's a two-sip. Moving on, moving on. Yeah, tell me but about it. But my nuts stay warm, okay? <laughs> please, please, please. We've managed to escape <laughs> the explicit tag. for Just, just, delete, just delete all of that. No, 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 no. Now's a good time. Can't do it. Can't do it. No, no. Can't now do it. Can't now do it. it really goes in. Yeah, can't do it. So speaking of uh, impromptu meetups, um, uh, Jeff Ward and I were talking uh, uh, by email about a week ago, and we said, you know, uh, we both have our calendars are open for Saturday morning, the 21st. Why don't we get together for uh, breakfast over at uh, Nashua's, uh, Nashua, New Hampshire's uh, on-field restaurant, and we'll let everybody know, and anybody wants to join us. And we thought, you know, like, we we gave you everybody, like, a week's notice, and we thought, you know, maybe one or two people might be able to join us. Well, according to the uh, interest expressed in the forums, we could have, like, eight, nine, ten people at this thing. I don't know. we got people. Oh, my God. Got uh, John Wellington says he's going to fly in from uh, from uh, White Plains, and uh, we got just people. Well, wow, that's sounding like an all time meetup leader. Well, I don't know. We had one at Oshkosh where we had about that many people. Yeah. Well, I don't. You know, I don't yeah. think we're good. We had like twelve or thirteen to the uh, Barnes Airport uh, uh, fly in uh, drive in, but uh, uh, so I, okay. I, I'm not necessarily suggesting that this. But but if you kind of factor in how much notice we got, you know, it's kind of like number of people per days of notice. 
tourists or something. We'll come up with some metric that will make this be the number one meetup of all time. Um, that's, uh, and uh, because you know, I want to be the best. I want to be number one. So uh, we're having a meetup uh, on a Saturday morning. Uh, this will, I, even I will make no claims that this will make it online prior to that meetup happening. So, uh, but uh, I just, it's going to be fun. Uh, we're going to get together. There's a nice restaurant right there on the field at Nashua. And uh, it's not a very big restaurant, which is going to be the little the gotcha here. Uh, whether or not they have uh, an area large enough for our 10 people at a time will tell. But, uh, you know, we'll just to get our coffee and go out on the ramp or something. And we've been having remarkably nice weather up here. So we might be able to go out on their little deck, too. So, um, so Oh, that would be wonderful. Well, if you're getting in two days what we had here today... Uh huh. What does uh, that mean? You're, you're, you're gonna you're gonna have kilo alpha weather. Oh, okay. Well, that'd be good. That'd be good. I'll, well, the forecast for tomorrow is rain and nastiness. That's Friday, um, and then so Saturday is the next day is the day we're gonna get together for this brunch. So, anyways, I don't know. It's gonna be it's, fun. We're just gonna get it's, together. It's winter up there, isn't it? Drink. Uh, okay. Oh wow, I forgot about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Right. So, um, a couple episodes ago, the man who knows no seasons. A couple of episodes ago, on the podcast, uh, we were talking about uh, um, the whole subject of how much does it cost to fly. Not so much what the number is, but what's the answer to that question when people ask you, well, "How much is it going to cost me to learn how to fly?" You know, do you say like, you know, a lot of people seem to be saying these days between six and ten thousand dollars. You know, um, or do you? Which I think is a bad answer. I think is a really bad answer. I think is. I mean, it may be an accurate answer, but it's not the right answer to, to keep people enthusiastic, and and uh, this subject generated a lot of discussion uh, in the forums. Um, and uh, uh, it, it's. Uh, I wish I could. Sum- there's just it a lot. Generated a lot. Of, it, it generated a lot of discussion. It also generated a lot of scenarios uh, within the discussion. How different people had accomplished their uh uh their check ride right on di- different approaches and different budgets and uh uh different cost levels and some geographic sensitivity showed up that was the thing that really jumped out at me was uh that uh that depending on where you live um it can be substantially uh less expensive um i mean by like a factor of two or more uh cheaper uh, right. If 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 you live in you know an area which has low co- low prices and you know, you know lower rental rates and you know CFI is getting paid less and so forth, it's uh, it's very interesting. Uh, it, it's clearly a subject that uh, that triggered something in our forum listeners. So uh, well, it's 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 one of the most common questions uh, wefos put to pilots like us. You know, I always thought about doing that. Uh, you know, what what's it cost these days to learn to fly? And uh, you know, it's 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 difficult to give any kind of answer that could be definitive for that person and their location. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, unless it's in, unless somebody who lives here in Wichita uh, or someplace else that I'm really familiar with. They asked me, you know, I, I don't really know what going rates are in different places. So it always makes it difficult to to, to give it people a, a, an answer that is helpful for them. Yeah. Uh, you know, usually winds up with that old, uh, that, that old throwaway. Well, it depends. Well, and of course it does depend. It's going to vary depending on where you live and who you are and how, you know, well you learn these kinds of things. Um, I le- I'm leaning towards an answer that doesn't talk about the total 
gross cost, but rather talks about because the reality is that people don't write a check up front for their air flight, their airplane, you know, their uh, flight training. They pay as they right. go. And so uh, I'm inclined to come up with an answer that's something, and these may not be the right numbers, but um, an answer that goes something along the lines of it's going to cost you about $300 a month, you know, for nine months, you know, or something like that, um, which is a lot of money. But That would be a good deal. Yeah, and that, that, assumed, that is definitely an, an, an optimistic um, view, but, you know, you could probably do it. And you could certainly do LSA in that kind of time frame and, and, and rate, I bet. There, there are still airplanes out here that you can rent for under 60 bucks an hour wet. Yeah. Suitable for getting your private pilot's license. Uh, and if the owner would keep up, keep up the IFR certification on it, you could do your instrument training or a, a bunch of it. Uh, in the same airplane for the same money. Uh, and then, boy, you hook up through one of the flight schools, and it costs you this much per hour for an instructor. And you hook up with some of the freelancers, and it's going to cost you less than that much. Uh, so, you know, there, there's, damn, there's a lot of variables at work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um I'm also increasingly, not to open up a whole other can of worms, but I'm also increasingly coming to the idea that we need to figure out how to make it so that money is not the selector um, on who becomes a pilot. Um, that, uh-huh. that in, in other words, you know, th- th- there should be some selector. You know, I, I'm not convinced that everybody should learn how to fly an airplane. It's just because there are some people who probably just shouldn't be allowed near airplanes. Um, likewise, near cars or you know, motorcycles or whatnot. All right, um, th- there should be a, there should be a selector of some sort. You know, that that you, some obstacle you have to overcome in order to learn how to fly. But having enough money shouldn't be it. Um, because as we discovered, a lot of times people with deep pockets are not the right people to be learning how to fly sometimes. Well, and, and, and I don't think it is the final arbiter for the, the hardcore and the, and, and the determined. I mean, you know, be, being really hardcore about the idea that you are going to do this one way or another uh, has helped put a lot of people who didn't seriously have the money to well, do it but saying that but they came up with the money by making a sacrifice in some other part of their life okay but not necessarily by being clever and finding a source of money that they you know can can you get like a student loan a student pilot loan can you you know the you way can, you you can finance your flight instruction through some maybe, of the maybe through schools. the VA yeah. <clears throat> yeah, you can certainly you can certainly finance things um <clears throat> You know, it used to be that, uh, you know, people would get a home equity loan. Uh, and, of course, no one has any equity in their home anymore. Um, but um, um, a lot of people just finance it with, you know, plastic, uh, which is yeah. easy, but it's not, it's not the, the cheapest way to do the it. The general aviation industry, and this is just totally off the top of my head, the general aviation industry ought to be financing some sort of program that is comparable to you know, government student loans, all right? There should be a system where people who are really interested can get low-cost loans to learn how to fly. That's what I think. Well, at, at one point in, in our country's history, there was a federal program that helped people get to the private pilot level. You talking like uh, a GI Bill after World War II? No, I'm talking about the Civilian Pilot Training Corps program before World War II. Oh, okay. Uh, that put us in a position to have enough pilots to start fighting World War II in 1940, in 1941, 
and not two years later like it would have been without the civilian pilot training corps. And that investment not only fed the war effort, but it also fed the post-war recovery when there was uh, yeah. growth in, in, I, in airplane flying and commercial uh, demand for commercial pilots and so forth. Uh, I mean, here's a real off-the-wall idea, all right? And I haven't run the numbers, so maybe this just doesn't make any economic sense, all right? But here's here's a real off-the-wall idea, is that is that uh, the all of the GA industry, and certainly the larger players, like the Sporties and the Garmins and the Aircraft Spruces and the Cessnas and the you know, uh, Beechcrafts, or, or, uh, they ought to all contribute into a fund that grants total subsidies, scholarships, to people to learn how to fly. Because every new pilot is a new customer, all right? And, and and I would suggest that in the long run, they would make money off that thing. That the amount of money it costs to make a pilot is less than what you would realize from them in, in business over time. And uh, they ought to do it, that. It'd take a real long view, but uh, the, the, the industry almost did something like that in the 70s with the Learn to Fly program. Uh, and they had the Learn to Fly girl yeah. that went all around the United States, uh, you know, doing press meetups and doing TV, you know, morning talk show things as they were then. They were generally live. And if they did a remote from the airport, otherwise they just showed film that she brought along. Um uh, in parallel with that program going on, and Gamma was who coordinated that. That's who wrote the checks to the Learn to Fly Girl was the, was the General Aviation Manufacturers Association. And their members funded it. Uh, but parallel to that was an investment tax credit for buying new airplanes that just wouldn't quit. So you, Jeb, me, we could start a little limited liability company, uh, buy a we could buy the tr- airplane. Buy that Trump jet. Well, yeah, this stuff mostly had to be new stuff. Okay. Well, and well. It, and it really did feed that, that. It was when those two programs were in parallel that the industry, uh, or feeling the effects of one another, the investment tax credit was still in effect. That the industry delivered like seventeen thousand eight hundred airplanes in one year. Right. Right. So, anyways, that sounds percent of them Well. There, there are two other things going on during that period of time. Uh, we had accelerated depreciation in, in, in addition to the ITC. The ITC was really only 10%, uh, and it was a tax credit as opposed to, uh, uh, which are certainly valuable, but it was, it was uh, uh, and certainly a one-to-one uh, reduction in your, in your taxes, but it wasn't uh, the end-all and be-all. <clears throat> the big thing we had going on back then was hyperinflation, and you could buy an airplane um, and it would it would not lose value nearly as quickly as, um, say, a, a vehicle might or, or an airplane might have, say, 10 years earlier. So when the smoke cleared, you could, you could buy a new airplane, lease it back, for example, um, and maybe use it uh, for, for business. You get the ITC. You get accelerated depreciation. Uh, you fly it for a year or two. Uh, you sell it. And you get out of it pretty much what you've got into it, and you basically fly yeah. for free. Uh, a lot of that, a lot of the the aircraft purchases uh, in the, during that period of time were speculative, in the sense that um, 
um, it wasn't so much uh, the f- purchasing and flying the airplane that was going on, but it was the economics of the of the overall transaction that made it much more attractive. All of that went oh, by yeah. the wayside in the early '80s, and um, um, the, we're, we we really have not gotten back to that. There, there have been changes in the tax laws that are are favorable uh, to aircraft operation and purchase over the years. Uh, but lacking the hyperinflation that we had in the late 70s, uh, it's, it's never been nearly as attractive as it was then. Yeah. Well, that's all well and good. But like I said, I, you know, I really want to go back well, to the root of this thing. I want, I want to subsidize new pilots. We need new pilots. Well, new pilots well, are valuable. I understand. And, and um, you know, FB, certain training organizations and, and FBOs will offer uh, financing. Uh, for for pilots who want to come in, and, or I should say, people who want to come in and become pilots, um, some of it's not all that attractive. Um, some of it is is looked at as another profit center, as opposed to say a loss leader uh, by that particular business. And that's you know not necessarily what you're talking about. Um, I, I guess um, uh, I guess where I would come down is um, for even for people of average means there is a way uh, to go about uh, all of this to go about financing the flight training and it may take a little imagination it may take a little bit of, of legwork to come up with the cash flow to do all of this uh, clearly it's worthwhile we think it's worthwhile certainly we, we would think that you would think it's worthwhile or you wouldn't be listening to us um, well it, and you know we'll, you we'll, just hit uh, on the- we'll maybe you know ex- you will maybe explore some other uh, some other opportunities, some other avenues uh, down the road, and kind of take this as a homework assignment. Yeah, well, and and David wants to jump in here, but I just want to say, D- Jeb, I mean, I want to know more about what those things are. You you, you say there are ways to do it, and um, and we've kind of in in a scattershot way mentioned different ways. There ought to be a resource that people could go to, a list. You know, the ten ten best ways to finance your flight, your primary flight training. You know, kind of list. We'll work work on something, but to me, the whole how much does it cost argument only works, whatever it costs, only works if you really reinforce the, gee whiz, what what I get to do, what I've been able to do since getting a, a license, you know, I mean, man, the rest of the world just doesn't have a clue. They don't get to do this stuff. They don't get to... Stumble yeah. into Andalusia, Alabama, right. running from a thunderstorm. Sit and meet the neatest people. I'm, I'm up in Georgia. I'm up in Georgia last. Go ahead, Jeb. Yeah, I'm up. I'm up in Georgia last weekend talking. Um, I had some some personal business up there, and uh, talking with my my next door neighbor, the uh, the family home up there, and uh, we were talking about um, a couple of different things, and and one of the things was that I needed to get a computer. And bring it back up to the house there in Georgia, and I said, "Yeah, I think what I'll probably do is work on that this week, and and uh, bring it up one day next week. I can just pop up an airplane and, and bring it to the house and set it up and and pop back home. I'm you know it's kill you know it's a long afternoon, but you know it's and he just starts laughing, and I'm like, what? <laughs> he says, you just kill me, you just kill me with this. I'm just going to pop up in the airplane." You know, uh-huh. do you yeah. understand you know, that that's not yeah. something I normally have access to? Do you understand how 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 um, um, I, I, I don't know what word he used? How, how out of the ordinary that is, for for lack of a better word. 
and I, I, I was kind of embarrassed. Um, I said, look, you know, I, I'm not, you know, not trying to brag or, 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 um, uh, you know, get into a class warfare thing or anything like that. It's just, you know, that's just me. That's what I do. I, I admit I'm very fortunate. I can do that. Um, but uh, at the same time, it does help. It, it it does help me resolve these kinds of nettlesome problems. Uh, otherwise, I'd have to, you know, it's a it's a ten hour round trip um, minimum uh, by car, and you're not going to do that in a day and, and and be able to get up the next morning and, and not feel it. Yeah. Um, but an airplane, you know, it, it's relatively easy. Well, it's, there, right in right there, right in and of itself is a good reason. Uh, for someone who is considering uh, uh, learning to fly or, or uh, has wanted to do this for, for a long time and, and really hasn't figured out a way to justify it to, to himself or herself or to a spouse or, or family members or something like that, um, that kind of application, that kind of mission, if you will, uh, in and of itself justifies the expense, uh, especially if you have to do it you know, with some regularity over a period of time. I know I'm preaching to the choir here, at least as far as you two guys are concerned. Maybe some of this will resonate with, with one of our listeners. Well, that, that's, that's the whole point of bringing this up is because when, when folks ask it, you know, what's it cost? Uh, of course, dollars and cents are important, but it pales next to what you're buying into. You, you know, you're, you're, you're paying your entry fee into a world of, of, of access and travel that the rest of the folks don't get, and what little they do get is on a human mailing tube at the at the uh, consideration and on the conditions of somebody else. So we've got Christmas coming up here in, what, about four weeks, a little over four weeks. And my wife and I are looking at travel plans back to our respective hometowns. When we still had an airplane in the hangar, this was the most no-brainer issue on the Christmas calendar. The only big deal was what days do we want to be gone so we can block out the kennel for the animals and tell our respective work contacts, you know, we're not going to be available during this period. Mm -hmm. After that, it was saddle up and go as long as the weather was willing, which it usually was. And we could fly the trip to D.C., drop off the bride, go back to my hometown in Indiana a couple of days later, spend Christmas with the family. The bride could come out on Southwest on a really cheap seat, and then we'd fly back to Wichita from there and spend less than the two round-trip airplane tickets that we would have had to buy otherwise, like we're going to have to do this year. I can't believe how much more than gas money it's going to cost to do that this year. And once you get past this idea that you've bought the ticket to, to, to play, you've earned it. You spent your money, you took the training, you passed the check ride. Now you get to use the puppy, and that means you could own your own ride and go where you want to go, when you want to go. Uh, so much cheaper when there's two of you going anywhere. You, don't, you no longer have to think in terms of, Expedia.com or bidding on Priceline to be able to afford it or doing a 30-day advanced purchase thing so that it'll fit your budget. You can look at the gas money and say, yeah, we can do that. Yeah. Let's go tomorrow. Yeah. We, we need to move on here, but I, and I'm just going to grab the last thought here, and that is t- I'm all about singing the praises of, of the, you know, the utility of personal aviation. Um, and and I, 
you know, we, we should continue doing that. But one of the things that I've learned doing this podcast is that from not from doing the podcast, but from from meeting listeners is that there's a huge population of people out there who already get it, who love aviation, who want to be involved, but either aren't able or don't believe they're able to afford it. And that to me is just a huge untapped thing and if we could figure out or help them figure out how to pay for this then we've made a huge stride forward and that's the kind of thing that i'm going to keep harping on as time goes on we'll work on it yeah um so a couple episodes ago three four five whatever month recently uh we talked about the story maybe this was an oshkosh time frame story about the uh, zodiac aircraft uh, being uh, uh, the FAA or the NTSB threatening to possibly ground them because of a of a problem, and uh, now apparently they this is kind of moved forward here. Does one of you understand this situation better than I and can explain it? Say that again, now. FAA. I've been following it. This is from uh, I'm reading from, and this has been reported a number of different places. I happen to be looking at uh, EA.org, a news story. FAA issues issues special airworthiness oh, information yeah. bulletin on zo- two Zodiac uh, aircraft models. Uh, right. EAA urges the subhead is EAA urges owners not to fly those aircraft until maintenance completed. Is this the same issue that we heard a few months ago with a with a, uh, a yeah, possible wing fl- or a or control surface flutter issue? It's, yeah, it it's an acronym um, for the same thing. Yeah. So this yeah. is this has now risen to the point where we they we we accept that it's a situation and it needs to be, because we said well, back it, then that it was over that it was over over dramatized. I think that's what we said two three months ago. And it, it, uh, it probably was what we said, and and um, given uh, what we knew at the time, uh, uh, it's probably a, a fair way to react. Just last week, and I read the NTSB report, the prelim anyway, today. Um, uh, this is over Arkansas, and I don't remember the exact locations. Uh, it was a CH-601, uh, I believe, uh, in cruise flight. Um, right wing departs the aircraft. Um, one guy on board. Um, eventually, the left wing departed the aircraft, and the rest of the aircraft uh uh, hit the ground and, and the pilot was killed. Um, that has unfortunately uh, happened a few too many times here in, in recent uh, recent months slash years. And um, um, the NTSB had had pounded on the FIA. I think I think what we had uh, uh, reacted to, uh, however many episodes it was ago, um, the NTSB had had pounded on the FIA to ground the airplanes. Um, and um, whether I don't know how the FAA reacted, we, we talked about it uh, that one time and, and didn't really follow up about it um, uh, based on only the NTSB's uh, uh, admonition to the FAA. Uh, but this is a little bit more serious now. There have been there has since the the awareness of of maintenance concerns on these aircraft um, had 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 been increased. Um, this particular aircraft has been well. Let me put another one. There's been another episode. There's not been another event, and that um, after after we raised the attention level of operators and, and maintainers to have another event like this um, is is certainly not a good thing. Uh, so it, it to me it kind of indicates that either you know someone has ignored um, the warning signs, uh, and I wouldn't well attach any uh, uh, any identification to who that person might be. 
or um, there is some kind of a, a, a fundamental issue here that needs to be addressed, it, whether it's uh, whether it's a maintenance concern, whether it's an engineering concern. Um, I don't know. Um, well, this but, is uh, this is actually kind of progressed since that November seventh story that we're looking at. Yeah, what's the latest? Uh, well, it it it's kind of evolved into a uh, that special airworthiness information bulletin is involved in basically a grounding of the SLSA versions and the FAA's decision to suspend issuing new airworthiness certificates for experimental amateur built or SLSA versions or ELSA versions until some fixes are done. Uh, Have they identified what fixes are required? Well, there's a a number of of, uh, fixes because although the crashes share some, uh, uh, the crashes that got the NTSB in such an uproar share some common threads, they're not all identical, so there's still a question, is this one design problem or one of two or three things that have each had its own impact on, on uh, the breakup of one of these airplanes? Uh, so, Well, the way you say that, week, you make it sound like they don't know exactly what the problem is yet. They know, they know some specific problems, but not all the crashes from the record have been, have, right. have been shown to be... Uh, circumstantially identical they haven't all broken up in the same way or crashed in the same way because of the same problem so what's going to happen here how do these folks get their airplanes back in the sky well they work with the manufacturer either amd uh which makes the uh, special lsa versions or uh zenith aircraft which makes the kits the amateur built kit versions uh to incorporate the fixes that they've designed and, and made available uh, and that the FAA says you need to do before you fly the puppies anymore. So it's, uh, I, I guess, kind of a first for an SLSA to have this kind of what amounts to an airworthiness directive imposed that says you've got to fix this. Mm-hmm. Is this uh, totally isolated to the zone? I mean, it is totally isolated, but is there a lesson that the this rest of us can... Just- Right. Is there a lesson, though, that we can, the rest of us can learn from this? I, I, I don't know. I'm just asking. Well, that's that. wow. I, that's I, tough uh, because this design's been around for 20 years. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And have this the basic uh, design anyway. Yeah. The the basic design, the the root design, the Zodiac's been around for a long time, and uh, uh, Zenith Aircraft has offered. Uh, different versions of the kits for i know 20 plus years yeah all right well we'll keep an eye on it these these accidents come up in in such a short period of time and share some common traits and not share all their traits is uh kind of puzzling Uh, i mean it seems to be related something that's uh, fairly on the flight Go ahead, not, not to flog a dead horse, and, and, and I, I have to confess at the, before I even say anything here that I know uh, um, two things about the, the, these accidents, dick and all. But I, I, do, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I, do, I do recall some discussion uh, of um, there being a, a, a flutter uh, problem um, with the ailerons, perhaps, um, on these aircraft. 
Um, generally, we're talking about a very light airplane uh, flown at, at relatively slow speeds. And generally, when you get into a flutter situation with an aircraft uh, in those parameters, you're talking about um, a balance issue on the aileron, or you're talking about slack control cables that, that don't uh, exert the tension necessary to prevent flutter. Um, what will eventually be decided here, I don't know, uh, as far as the airworthiness, continued airworthiness of these aircraft and what a, a permanent fix is to prevent this kind of a failure. Um, but if, if it is, in fact, a flutter issue, and if, if it is, in fact, a uh, uh, related to um, uh, slack cables, for example, or an imbalance situation of the aileron, that's a maintenance issue. It's, it's, it, you might be able to point to it as a design issue, an engineering issue, but as fundamental basis, presuming for the moment that, you know, a bunch of these airplanes have been flying around for uh, a lot of time without any of these issues, and all of a sudden um, the fleet is seeing some of these kinds of failures. Uh, that to me strikes strikes me anyway as as a maintenance issue as opposed to an engineering issue. Yeah. Well, it, it, it's worth pointing out here that uh, there's an FAQ on this from uh, the good folks at the Experimental Aircraft Association. And the first question is, are all Zenith 601 models affected by the recent FAA actions? And the answer is no, only the CH-601XL and the CH-650. Other models of the 601 line, such as the UL, HD, and HDS, are not affected. So that would kind of uh, clear the older yeah. versions that have been around for a long time. And what's required, uh, there's a whole... Uh, set of uh, maintenance instructions from the manufacturer uh, of the kit and the uh, SLSA versions. Uh, so if if you got one of those, you, you probably already know about it. Yeah. But yeah. Okay. Do yourself a big favor. And yeah. Catch up. Check up. We'll uh, we'll pay pay attention to this and see where it goes. So uh, a little while ago, we were talking about uh, how to get started flying inexpensively, and uh, David has called our attention to uh, a, a home-built airplane that you can get started f building for under $10. The, uh, this is a B-Lite. Uh, it's called B-Lite, B-E-L-I-T-E, B-Lite Aircraft, and uh, they sell plans, apparently, for uh, kind of interesting-looking little, uh, little tail dragger kind of little tail dragger uh, and uh, it's just a cool little airplane is there is, did what caught your attention about this david just the kind of fun you know uh uh slogan about under ten dollars or is there more to this airplane than than meets the eye well the 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 rude airplane has a, a has a fairly long history uh and b light aircraft bought the design from an established manufacturer that was uh uh once called kit fox and uh Oh, is this the? Uh... This is the Kit Fox Light reincarnated oh, okay. by a new manufacturer with a lot of new design uh, elements incorporated into it, and uh, you know the wing study blueprint is to show you how you're going to be building the wing if you want to do one of these from their kit. Uh, they're going to be selling kits and uh, and finished airplanes, and so is a one a variety of options. Yeah. It's a part 103 airplane. It's a part 103. It's an ultralight. 
It's a, uh, yeah. a it's a one seat. Just to kind of describe it, it's a one seat high wing tail dragger. Um, looks like it's. I'm not sure what. I'm going to call it fabric covered. Although they're talking about uh, carb, well, carbon fiber wings. I guess that might be the structure. But uh, yeah, it's an interesting That's the structure. Yeah, but uh, it's an interesting layer. What kind of it, it? I'm guessing it's some sort of uh, Rotax engine. What, do you know? I'm looking here for information about what engine they recommend you put on it. Um, well, they are. Uh, they've been flying it with a variety of engines, and. I'm actually not sure what they are, what their final recommendation is on this. Yeah. I don't believe it's a Rotax, though. Anyways. But it could be. Cool little airplane. Um, uh, almost as an aside, I should say that I really like the... I'm, I, I'm not sure if I like or don't like, but I do like. I like the uh, slogan that they have on this, uh, this page that you pointed us to. Um, it says, Be Light Aircraft, and it says, Part 103, an experimental aircraft that look and fly like real airplanes. <laughs> Wait a minute! It is a real airplane. What are you talking about? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. The uh, we've we've met the weebies that uh, have uh, tried to resurrect this airplane as a uh, a standalone product. Got a lot of respect for what they're trying to do. Check it out. It may be what scratches your itch and fits your needs. And the most expensive kit they're showing on their websites under eighteen thousand, and that's plus an engine. Oh, I'm sorry. That, uh, but it's the a, least expensive version is eighty one hundred bucks. So, right. yeah, very cool, very cool. Okay, moving on. Let's see now. Um, I, I, I'm not sure if I'm up to speed enough to really talk about this, but I did want to call attention to the fact that a couple of listeners wrote in the forums. We kind of casually uh, mentioned uh, using automobile engines in airplanes uh, in a recent episode. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I think the whole thing got started because I jokingly referred to using, uh, made mention of using a Corvair engine in an airplane. And, and that kind of led to a little, us being, I guess, a little dismissive on the whole subject. Uh, and, and in some ways, you know, justifiably, we talked a little bit about what we believed our, our, our reasoning behind thinking that automobile engines didn't make ideal aircraft engines. But uh, a couple of listeners took us to task in the forums and made a very uh, impassioned and somewhat informed case, more than somewhat, a, a genuinely informed case, um, that there have been some good auto engine conversions uh, on airplanes. And and if nothing else, I want to just call that to attention of our listeners. Um, you might want to jump into the forums and, and find that uh, that th- thread and, uh, and educate yourself. Do you guys want to add anything to this or... Uh, I think they said volumes, and they understand yeah. them. We were primarily talking about, uh, if I remember the context, we were primarily talking about aircraft engines and experimental installations. David, you faded off in the distance there. Come back. We were talking about automobile engines and air, experimental aircraft uh, applications. Yep. And uh, there's been a number of ones that have been around and used for a long time. Volkswagen is one of them. Uh, Corvair is another. Subaru. Uh, but none of them have exactly you know, taken off like a, a, a bat out of uh, wherever. And mm-hmm. there have been some automobile-based engines actually certified it for production aircraft use and STC'd as, uh, as replacements on some airframes. And they failed to take off dramatically. Well, actually, they failed to take off kind of overall. Uh, so, you know, the potential's out there because God knows we know that some of the greatest combat airplanes in history had liquid-cooled 
uh, non you know aircraft configurations like the the Rolls Royce Merlin and the Allison V twelve and the OX five. So you know, uh, there's two things going on there, and you know, I'll, I'll maybe try to put a little bit more meat on this bone. Um, purpose built and purpose de- specifically purpose designed. Uh, liquid-cooled aircraft engines like, uh, you know, the Allisons and and uh, the Merlins, etc., um, obviously have a great track record. Uh, you know, they were built uh, sometimes with maybe a 50-hour uh, life expectancy, you know, TBO. Um, a lot of work went on, you know, on Mustangs and, and uh, Spitfires and, and Hurricanes once they landed back at, at their base, uh, um, um, a lot of work went on, went, went into them overnight, but those were, you know, those engines were designed from the ground up to uh, to be used in aircraft. The, the thing, one of the things that got us on this discussion uh, had to do with um, uh, what used to be the Orinda uh, V8 engine, and is now, I believe, uh, uh, the Trace Aero engine or, or some other description. But Trace, I believe, is the company that, that owns the rights right now. Very good. And the Orinda, yeah, the Orinda engine, um, uh, and, and this engine is basically designed um, in the 600 horsepower class, as I recall, um, not as a replacement for uh, an IO 550, but maybe as a replacement for a, a small output or medium output PT6 turbine. Uh, and, exactly. And, you know, a, a PT6 can run, you know, a million, million five. I, I'm not up on my PT6 prices. Uh, whereas this engine maybe would be, you know, uh, half of that or, or, or some other uh, fraction uh, of a PT6's price, uh, but producing roughly the same power. Uh, um, and and that's, that's the attraction to an engine like this. Uh, but my point, especially when we're talking about uh, engines of that horsepower class. Uh, my point is that many of these engines are are, try, are, are built up from uh, what was an original automotive design, and and I know you know um, I think I think this point was made in, in that particular episode, but the original design for these automobile engines were. Every now and then, they would go to 75% power, or maybe even 100% power, when some 16-year-old Florida coming off a stoplight. Uh, but most of the time, they would spend their lives cruising around at, you know, maybe 40% power on the interstates, or or uh, uh, going from from idle to uh, 50% power as they accelerated away from a stoplight in in, in stop and go traffic. Um, and that's what they're designed to do. They're not designed to run at 75% power for four or five hours at a time, as, uh, uh, say, the IO 520 in my airplane is. Um, that's one of the fundamental differences to me, and that's kind of the, the jumping-off point for me. Yes, you can take a VW engine or a Corvair engine uh, of... of Admittedly, in, in, in relatively l- less displacement and less horsepower and, and less need for cooling and, and uh, uh, less uh, uh, metallurgical uh, uh, technology involved and, and run it uh, reliably in an experimental, in an LSA even, um, uh, and, and get away with it. Um, but when we're talking about these larger bore, larger horsepower engines, 
uh, ported over essentially from from the automotive industry. Um, I'm I'm willing to be educated, but my experience has been it just doesn't work as well as as we would want it to. Uh, there have been a number of attempts to do this, and over the years, uh, the Orinda is one of them. And, and the Orinda people, this was a Canadian company as I recall back in the 80s. They spent a lot of time and a lot of money uh, trying to get this right, and from what I can see, uh, based on what the trace people are, are still trying to do, it ain't right yet. Now, that's a sampling of one. Uh, and again, I'm certainly willing to be educated. And, and I don't think we were maligning uh, 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 VWs and, and, and Corvair engines, per se. Um, a lot of that comes around to, you know, um, uh, putting a liquid-cooled engine in an airplane is like putting an air-cooled engine in a submarine. Um, and that's that's a, a a very shorthand populist way to to to, to say it, but um, those are some of the issues, uh, at least as far as I can tell. Um, you know, the flip side of which is, you know, there's a lot of other engines out there. Um, some of the Rotax uh, products, some of the Jabiru products, uh, have certainly been specifically modified for and and have been very successful uh, in. Uh, um, the aviation applications, but many of them started life um, uh, maybe in in, in, in groundbound applications. Um, um, you know, Rotax has got a lot of experience building uh, uh, motorcycle engines, ATV engines, utility vehicle engines, things of this sort. Uh, before they even thought about going to aircraft, um, I don't know that much about Jabiru. Um, those are some very nice looking engines. Um, but um, we're talking about smaller displacement, smaller power output, uh, easier to cool, uh, easier to keep together uh, than some of these larger engines like the Orinda slash Trace. And I'm going to shut up. Okay. After I... We got uh, yeah. So we'll put a link in the show notes to the uh, to the uh, postings that uh, some listeners uh, uh, made their case and a compelling case. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, we need to start wrapping this thing up here, but there are a couple of subjects I'd like to touch on before we uh, before we do. Uh, it's getting to be that time of year, and David, you wanted to talk about uh, aircraft airframe icing a little bit, yes? Yeah, but we can we can get into that when we've got a little more time. But uh, okay, uh, well we'll hold it off. Week we'll, week after, there's a the, there's uh, a story. Uh, if people want to kind of uh, kind of read ahead. Uh, there's a story. Uh, oh, it's oh, this sorry. This is a PDF. This is a report from FAA. Um, this is part of their uh, publication. That's right. I've got it pre-opened here because it's a PDF file. My goodness, when are they going to learn? Um, it's a PDF file. Oh, it's this is from a current issue. Well, that's of because the, it's a magazine. Yeah, that's right. The FAA Aviation doesn't make any news, difference. Yeah. It still should turn it into a real web page. Don't get me started. This is from the current issue, November December 2009 of FAA Aviation News, and there's a uh, you could. You can search this too. So. Yeah, there's a lot of stories here about uh, about aircraft icing and uh, and and a good thing to be paying attention to to refresh our memories on the, all the issues. If if if, if you want to share some airframe icing stories or you know cocktail shaker stories uh, on the forums page, we'll talk about them uh, here soon because we're getting into that time of year. Yeah. Let's wrap this thing up by doing some bitching and moaning about uh, issues with the National Airspace System and uh, our friends at TSA. Uh, first of all, uh, oh, Lock, Lockmart oh, in the, I'm sorry, what? Lockmart, in their infinite wisdom, has decided that they have not 
closed quite enough flight service station facilities, and so they've announced that they're going to close a whole bunch more. Apparently, there's only going to be one in Bangalore now instead of... That's a bad joke. Um, Jeb, you put this up there. You want to you wanna say something? Can you yeah, say something? Are you, are you just but, kind of apoplectic or what? Well, I, I'm, I'm of two minds here. One, well, three minds, I guess. One is, you know, kind of sort of I told you so, and, and not so much I told you so, but I think a lot of people, when um, um, the FAA started to get into this privatized flight service station mode uh, several years ago, um, warned against uh, some of the problems that we all saw uh, and lived through. Um, now, um, some of those problems have been resolved, and, and Lockmart, uh, excuse me, Lockheed Martin, which is the contractor, uh, and has, has had this contract since uh, I believe 2005, has um, uh, improved uh, from where they started out and, and where they were in say 06 or so, um, which is a good thing because they couldn't have gotten much worse uh, and still uh, been able to provide the service. Um, Having been a, a consumer of flight service station services, uh, and, and in fact, in full disclosure, um, in an earlier life, um, represented the um, uh, employees, uh, the labor union, uh, serving the flight service stations um, um, in, in, in the policy arena. Uh, I'm very familiar, at least I was very familiar with some of the issues they were dealing with, and. and uh, um, some of the uh, the people involved and, and uh, all you know all very good people and trying to do the best job that they can. Um, all of that having been said, uh, I think we also you know this particular story comes from AOPA, and uh, AOPA was one of the organizations that that um, uh, back in the day in, in 2003 to 2004 2005 time frame. Um, um, I'm not sure what the correct uh, word here is, whether it's uh, supported or acquiesced or agreed or or uh, bought into or uh, whatever. Um, they did not oppose um, the um, uh, privatization of flight service station facilities um, and, and did, in fact, reach out and work with Lockheed Martin and, and I'm, I'm sure pounded the table a few times uh, with them. But... Um, um, they, uh, uh, I guess, uh, worked very closely with the FAA and, and with Lockmart to, to try to make this, this process work. <clears throat> um, at the time, perhaps a little bit more opposition would have been helpful, putting mm -hmm. all that aside. Um, now we see where the, the, uh, um, the company, Lockmart, is, is now going to be closing additional flight service station facilities around the country. Beginning in February of next year, according to the AOPA story here, Lockheed will close its locations in Columbia, Missouri, Honolulu, Hawaii, Kankakee, Illinois, Lansing, Michigan, Nashville, Tennessee, Seattle, Washington, and St. Petersburg, Florida. Now, just because I happen to be in Florida, uh, that doesn't mean uh, I'm affected or unaffected. I, I don't know how well I'm affected. And in fact, um, I, I will say that uh, despite some very, very rough road, in the 06, uh, uh, yeah, the 0506 time frames, all of my recent interactions with flight service have been pretty seamless. Mm -hmm. um, I wouldn't go so far as to say better than ever, um, but I, I called 
uh, last uh, last uh, when was it Sunday uh, to get a standard briefing. Um, the whole you know weather was great, so it wasn't a very you know, didn't really need a whole lot of detail. Um, but uh, I got connected immediately. Um, the guy I talked to on the other end was he had all the information available. Is very professional. Um, I got my information and, and got off, and uh, it was about as good as it could have been uh-huh. uh, before, during, or after uh, privatization. Um, I'm optimistic that that will continue, uh, and I don't, you know, in this instance, in that instance on Sunday, I don't have a clue. Uh, yeah, see, because that's. I, I didn't have a clue which facility I was speaking with. Oh, yeah, right. See, that's sort of my question now. You know, when when we started down this road, you know, whatever it was, 15 years ago, and they started closing flight service stations, and, and uh, uh, you know, our, our argument always was that this is this is a, a, an abomination because we need the local flight service stations, we need the local information and the local reports that they can provide to us, and and we thought this was going to be the end of the world, and, I, and in some ways it is worse, but... But that's kind of a done deal. I mean, that's that sh- just that ship sailed exactly. That, that ship sailed exactly. So given that, the, so what we really seem to be talking about here is that Lockmart's just going to consolidate into a, into fewer phone centers, and does that really make any difference? Assuming they can continue to carry the load. Well, ja- Dave, it doesn't. It doesn't. David, go ahead. I was just going to say that I, I look at the closing in Honolulu. And say, do they have another flight station in Hawaii? Because if they do, well, okay. <laughs> uh, if they don't, is there really somebody back in, you know, continental USA that has local insights into the weather patterns there? Do people actually get to learn that much about the areas that they cover? Because I get the feeling they're covering so much area that that would be difficult to do. For anybody, uh, and somehow or another, the consolidation from what 461 in the early 80s to what was it, 61 or 71, under the uh, automated flight service station network that came out of the Reagan administration's consolidation, those folks actually managed to develop some local expertise. Uh, so, you know, if that local expertise is still available and the automated sensors can deliver the raw data, uh, okay, you throw up some webcams instead of the guy walking out on the deck looking at the sky and looks at the webcam, okay, maybe. In the meantime, when they're closing one in Honolulu, the first question in my mind is, is there another one in Hawaii? If they close the one in Anchorage, is there another one in Alaska? Uh, at some point, I have concerns that the uh, the consolidation and automation dependency will be uh, you know a, a short-term hindrance someday down the road and they won't have a network to fall back on yeah but okay. as Jeb said yeah. that ships kind of sailed yeah yeah Jeb final the, thought we got to move on was yeah, yeah, time was when um, uh, we didn't have the telecommunications capability that we have now. We didn't have the graphics and, and automation capabilities that we have now. Um, that uh, a network of flight service stations providing these services, both uh, in person, uh, by telephone, um, and by radio, uh, were much more important. Um, and technology has kind of, of made some of that obsolete. Um, yeah. 
but we still, I think, have issues um, with um, um, uh, interpretation, with uh, local topographies um, that uh, are being uh, ignored. Uh, and I don't know how to, to address them. I, I, I don't know that we can address them uh, with the infrastructure we have and we're going to have in the, in the near, near term. Um, what we do need, though, is um, uh, additional emphasis on interpretation of raw weather data, and you know the the the, um, the decoding of, of uh, TAFs and METARs, for example, is a, is a good tool. I, I prefer to to get my data raw and interpret it myself. Um, um, things like NOTAMs and and PIREPs, uh, all of that uh, needs to be interpreted. Um, the, the thing that, that um, in, in my experience, has been uh, uh, the most um, useful in um, uh, getting my weather information and, and trying to figure out how to interpret it and what to make of it and, and then make the go or no-go decision has been time. And I even wrote an article on this for safety some, some months ago, uh, basically talking about the fourth dimension. We have, you know, uh, up, down, left, right, we have uh, um, uh, the three dimensions that with which we're all familiar. But we also have that fourth dimension, which is time. And if we see something that, that uh, we don't want to fly into, well, we don't have to fly into it. We can turn around and land and wait for it to go by or wait for it to dissipate or wait for it to uh, um, just simply move away or, or whatever. Uh, and then we can take off and... and uh, uh, fly back to the area that had that bad weather. Uh, it might take, you know, 30 minutes. It might take three days. Um, the punchline, if I if I may, is that um, pilots these days often don't have those interpretive skills. They don't may perhaps think in that fourth dimension. And um, um, while they might have all the information they need to make an intelligent decision. Um, for one reason or another, they're incapable of making that decision, whether it's experience, whether it's, it's inability to interpret. So um, clearly the technology has improved. Clearly the information has gotten better um, uh, from a variety of standpoints. But um, we still need flight instructors, mentors, um, um, podcasters, all need to, to stress to people that uh, they need, that, that pilots need to learn how, how to interpret weather reports and, and mm -hmm. interpret it not just uh, what 200 and a half looks like, uh, but what that means to their operations, what that, mean, what that means gun. to to their experience levels, what that means to um, the airport they're trying to get into, uh, the time of day they're trying to get into it, and, and all the other parameters. If it's, if it's 200 and a half at... Uh, at my home, uh, the airport I fly into in, in Georgia a lot, that's right at the, the airport's minimums. The airport has an IOS. If it's 200 and a half here at Hidden River, um, I'm flying to Sarasota and renting a car because uh, there's no way in God's green earth I'm getting in here. Right. Um, and, and if okay. it's, and if it's uh, you know, uh, clear in 10, but it's 20 knots, you know, gusts of 30 out of the north, there's no way I'm getting into Hidden River. And you're saying you uh, need somewhere else. You need good flight service I, I need, to make that judgment, or to make that observation. Yeah, I need good. You need yeah, good I need, data. Well, I need. Yeah, I need good information, but I also need to know 
what that's going to look like uh, when I get down, you know, on short final. Uh, if I'm if I've got you know 30 degrees cocked into the into the wind and holding the wing down and it's and it's rough as a cob and uh, I've got I'm trying to put this this airplane on uh, you know uh, a postage stamp um, guys I'm going to go around I'm going to find another airport and, and and put it down there and get a cup of coffee and when I stop shaking I'll uh, think about you know what to do next mm-hmm. um, it's the judgment it's the judgment call of the pilot. And Thank without you. Enough I was hoping you'd use that word. And, yeah, and without enough information and experience to make uh, a, a judgment call on the on the conditions he or she is presented with, all the information in the world not going to help. Yeah. Okay. Well, you you and I both know pilots that have hundreds and hundreds of hours whose judgment skills don't reflect the time they've got. We know pilots that have tremendous judgment skills and fewer flight hours than they would seem warranted. Uh, but knowing yourself and having the judgment skills to go with it, uh, you know you know your airplane, knowing what it looks like in a cross going into Hidden River, uh, as opposed to doing it for the first time in that kind of cross, right. uh, that might be a trip to Sarasota just on principles. Right. If I had never seen the place and never done it before. Right. Okay. Let's move along here. Um, Jeb, you're, you're also Thank fading God. off. Jeff, Jeb, yeah, I need to, I need to, I need to twist this around and, and I'm kind of leaning on the desk in an That's awkward fashion and I need to, I'll, I'll speak in directly into the microphone. There now. you go. Thank you very much. <clears throat> um, <All> righty then. <laughs> shout outs. What do you guys got? I got a couple here. Let's see. Uh, we go first. Got, We've got uh, a, 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 I guess, a long time or a, a, a listener for some time who's a relatively new participant in the forums who uh, has uh, a, a, an aviation blog that I wanted to call people's attention to, uh, Steph's Flying Blog. And I'm trying to see if he gives any more of his name here. But anyway, Steph is a relatively new uh, new uh, participant in the forums, and uh, he also calls uh, or points us to his uh, his blog where he uh, it says Steph's blog on his attempt to learn to fly, and uh, and he gives keywords microlight ultralight um, Luxembourg. So I guess he's not in the U.S. Anyways, it's an interesting blog, and uh, you might want to take a look. It's just kind of a, a cool thing, and uh, look for his postings in the forums as well. Uh, let's see now. David, what do you got? My shout-out this week to all the people that have been out enjoying the airtime while the weather's not icy. Yeah. it's yeah, yeah. It's, It certainly is beautiful weather up here in New England. I'll tell you, it's just been, uh, um, although it's getting, it's starting to dip below freezing almost every night, um, the days have been really nice and, uh, and very pleasant and uh, in pretty good flying weather. Um, the other shout-out I have here is uh, a, a, a for another forum uh, member has uh, called our attention to uh, a, a meetup group. Meetup is, a, is an online service that helps people uh, organize uh, what we've been, you know, meetups. There's an actual formal meetup thing. Um, and uh, he has a meetup called the 100 Hamburger, the $100 Hamburger. And it's to, uh, to help uh, groups of people out in the uh, West Coast area who want to get together and uh, have a sort of group fly out and go someplace and and, uh, and get together. So I think that's great. You should check out. It's www.meetup.com slash 100. It's 100 hamburger. So meetup.com slash 100 hamburger. And uh, you can get a little, uh, uh, if you're on the West Coast, there'd be a way to hook up with some other pilots and go do some activities together. 
Anything else, David, Jeb? Uh, yeah, Tracy Potter, uh, who uh, is uh, president of Hagerstown Aircraft Services up in Hagerstown, Maryland. Uh, his shop is the shop that painted my airplane many moons ago. They've, they've done some other work for me over the years. Um, Tracy is one of the good guys. Uh, got a great business up there. Uh, but he comes to mind um, as a result of a um, uh, an email thread uh, one of the one of the email groups I uh, participate in, in the DC area pilots uh, pilots organizations um, talking about preheating an airplane. Uh, here we are down in, in winter time and and uh, um, the, the list got onto this topic about. Uh, uh, how to preheat and whether to preheat and, and what's good and what's bad and why we're doing this and, and things like that. And um, um, as usual, Tracy's uh, got his eye on the right ball and, and uh, knows what he's talking about. And, and uh, I just appreciate that. And, and uh, uh, hadn't hadn't talked to, hadn't seen Tracy in a number of years and, and just wanted to give him a shout out. I don't know if he'll ever uh, hear this or, or hear about it, but um, uh, he, he's good people and it's a good shop if you're ever in that area. Yeah. Jeb, you've talked a lot about over the year, the couple of years we've been doing this, about the D.C. pilots list. Is that yeah. strictly for of interest to people in the D.C. area? I mean, you obviously mention things from time to time that are more general interest. W- would a non-D.C. person benefit and be welcome in that group, you think? I, I think absolutely. It's a, it's a Yahoo-hosted list. There is, there is a moderator. Uh, I don't believe that it requires any uh, um, great machinations to... Um, um, uh, to become a member, I think it's an automatic kind of thing. Um, and if if there is a problem on on trying to join that, uh, you know, somebody you know send up a flare, and, and I'll try to run some interference. I am not the list owner. I have no uh, um, interest in being a list owner. Uh, I do know the list owner, and uh, I'm happy to, uh, as I say, run interference. Yeah. DC Pilots list is is clearly designed for and and and. Um, um, uh, specializes in um, talking about issues and, and uh, topics of of great interest to uh, pilots in and around the Washington D.C. area. This includes obviously the the D.C. three airports, the uh, the flight restricted zone, the the special flight rules area, etc. Uh, but also uh, uh, talks about places to fly, places to eat, uh, status of various airports. Um, um, you know, training, uh, where to get training, all kinds of different issues. Uh, the list just recently, uh, in, or a couple of days ago, got started talking about preheating and, and things like that. And I haven't chimed in on any of this yet, but uh, um, I kind of kind of prefer to let some of these take run their course. But uh, uh, yeah, uh, and there there are other people on the list from from other parts of the country, and maybe they live in the D.C. area for a few years and and. Uh, uh, keep uh, keep their hand in, if you will, by participating in the list, and that's fine. And and they're more than welcome. Uh, certainly, other people. Uh, certainly, if if you if you are listening to me and and uh, you live and and fly in the D.C. area, this is something you should consider doing. Um, if you don't live in the D.C. area, it still might be useful to you. Yeah, great, David. You have a last shout out, or this is an Embry Riddle student doing an aviation research project and he's trying to get people to participate uh, the, the goal of the project is to determine whether the number of hours needed to solo can predict future performance and training so this guy's built a survey and I'm going to copy this and send it to Jack so he can put it in the show notes uh, the survey's pretty short and painless and uh, we'll uh, help him 
develop his research project for his uh, for his uh, professors at Embry Riddle and maybe help affect the change someday. So yes. it's just worth a shot. That's great. That's great. Okay, definitely time to stick a fork in this one. That's Dave Higdon. Uh, Dave is an aviation photographer, also an aviation journalist, and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. Uh, David, do you know this week where do people can find you on the Internet? You had trouble last week with the URLs. <laughs> I'm giving you crap. Well, let's see. They can find me on the Internet at avbuyer.com, davehigdon.biz, aviationsafety.com, aea.net. Uh, you can Google me and weed out the golf writer and the theoretical physicist and the rest of it's probably me and also here is jeb burnside an aviation journalist currently serving as the editor-in-chief of aviation safety magazine jeb where are you on the internet uh, same place i always have been uh aviation safety magazine.com uh is the personal website and uh, uh occasionally pop up on appweb.com and I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. And you can learn more about me at jackhodgson.com and aroundthefield.net. As always, big thanks to uh, Jeff Ward for creating our show notes. And I'm looking forward to having uh, brunch with him and a bunch of other folks uh, on Saturday morning. Also, thanks to uh, and Mike. congrats again on the seaplane rating. Yeah, very cool, very cool. By the way, speaking of the, of the seaplane rating, um, I introduced, I should have mentioned this more formally earlier in the podcast, but I introduced a new section on the website uh, the other day. Uh, we hear uh, all the time uh, about people who have achieved new ratings in uh, their flight uh, you know, uh, career, if you will, um, whether it be private pilot or, or some other rating or first solo or buying an airplane or seaplane or whatever. And uh, we've started to collect those together in sort of a Hall of Fame kind of wall of glory kind of thing, um, a list on the website. There's a uh, sort of miniature version of that on the home page. If you look at the uh, right-hand column, you'll see a miniature version of that, and then you can click through to uh, a more detailed version of uh, of folks who have achieved uh, new aviation ratings. And uh, yeah, very, uh, very nicely done. Jeff Ward, thank you. Jeff Ward is there. You are there, Jeb. Uh, and, uh, and as we hear about folks uh, who have achieved new ratings, uh, we'll add them to the list and if if uh, you have achieved a rating or you know someone send us uh, an email to uh, podcast at uncontrolledairspace.com we also want to thank uh, mike morgan and royce earl and to the many other listeners who have created the awesome show opening disclaimer clips that we use we are also very grateful for the financial support we receive from our listeners. For information on how you can make a donation to this podcast, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage and the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. It doesn't need to be very much. Just 10 or $15 over the span of a year is a big help. And don't forget, you, you can visit with all of us at the Uncontrolled Airspace website. You can read the blog, you can view the forums, check out the wiki, the aviation movies list, the new ratings list, and more. All of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com. Hey, David, what were you going to say? If you want to live forever, go fly, because time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. That's right, and that's enough talking. Let's go flying. TTFN. <laughs>